Acclaimed biographer Deidre Barr recalls her years in Paris with Samuel Beckett and Simone de Beauvoir in her new book, Parisian Lives. Bear paints new portraits of these literary giants and shines a fascinating light on the art of biography. Parisian Lives is in stores now. Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. Depending on whom you talk to, the American Psychological Association's classification of traditional masculinity as emotionally harmful is either a long overdue recognition of a very serious problem or a very serious attack on men by cultural Marxists. Certainly, the disproportionate number of men who commit suicide, get arrested, drop out of college, and have become addicted to opioids gives weight to the APA's designation. It seems that the strong, silent type doesn't live a long or happy life. In the November issue, Barrett Swanson went on a weekend retreat with Everyman, a men's group that's trying to solve the problem of toxic masculinity. While there, Swanson discovered the benefits and the very serious limitations of the organization's approach, which seems to draw from principles other than traditional psychology. I spoke with Swanson about reporting the story and, well, what's happening with men. You mentioned that every man comes out of, but also tries to really distance itself from a long tradition of men's groups. And one of the most recent of those in the early 90s was uh, Iron John. So can you talk about that lineage and specifically Iron John and how it kind of prefigured what every man does? Sure, sure. So I, in the course of doing the, the research reading, I came across a fairly conspicuous trend, which is that in every major advancement of the feminist movement going all the way back to suffragism, there were corresponding outflashings of, of, of male responses. And typically those were a kind of three-pronged response where you had out-and-out, chest-thumping anti-feminists who were vociferously against any sort of advancement for women. This was particularly during, the, so like the anti-suffragism organizations. And then you had a kind of masculinist response, which was groups who were somewhat amenable to women entering into politics, but who nevertheless insisted upon the genders being sequestered. So you had things like Theodore Roosevelt espousing Boy Scouts for America, championing like burly sports like football and boxing, etc. And then and then you had pro-feminist men's groups. And that tracks pretty consistently across history insofar as during second wave feminism, you had male liberationists who were like pro-feminist groups. And then you had your men's rights activists who were sort of the, the far right end of things. And then in the 90s, right, we, you had groups like Iron Johns, which were embodying that sort of masculinist arena. They were men who were interested in, I mean, under the aegis of, of guys like Robert Bly and Robert Moore, they were interested in exploring Jungian archetypes to explain masculinity and to see themselves as, you know, invoking really, really like odd, primitive narratives about what men are and essentialist narratives. So guys would go out into the woods and, you know, recite Brothers Grimm fables and, you know, there was nudity and there was chanting and there was 
names based upon animal figures with which these men apparently identified, etc. So it was kind of the most kooky and uh, satirized too. I mean, I think SNL and Kids in the Hall both uh, satirized the Iron Johns kind of into oblivion. The main complaint at the time from gender scholars was was roughly commensurate to, to my complaint, which was that this was putatively a solution to toxic masculinity, men reckoning with their emotions and trying to engage in practices that would help them restore some sort of lost manhood and thereby make them better men and more stable partners, etc. But in fact, this was sort of a spiritual weekend of, you know, personal rejuvenation and those sorts of things. So Iron Johns were, I think, more openly committed to certain ideological principles, i.e. Jungian archetypes, etc. Every man and groups like them, I think, are far savvier. They understand the, the, the very queasiness that a, that a term like men's group is going to elicit, not only for men who probably saw, you know, some of that stuff in the 90s, but also they're acutely conscious of the conversation into which they're entering and are incredibly wary of sort of invoking the ire of commentators. And so they don't, they don't espouse any clear agenda. Their, their website, all of their materials are rinsed of any kind of explicit statement about masculinity. The weekend itself was utterly devoid of any kind of meaningful intellectual discourse about masculinity <laughs> and and what it was instead and i think my piece bears this out was a kind of festival of catharsis um mm-hmm. yeah i don't know if that's a cogent <laughs> answer to your question but <laughs> no, no totally no i think the main distinction seems to be that there used to be kind of a gender essentialism Right. With the Jungian archetype sort of thing. And you can right. see that in other people, men's rights activists, people like Jordan Peterson, sure. people like Gavin McInnes, who are saying there's something fundamentally male and we must embrace that. Whereas these other groups, like every man, are kind of trying to get away with that without actually doing the work of saying that. Precisely. There's a kind of soft essentialism at work. I mean, the very fact that we sort of traipsed out into the woods was, you know, kind of even invoking the Boy Scouts, right? You know, we were at, we were at yeah. this wilderness retreat amid all the trappings of like machismo drenched furnishings. There was like elk themed blankets. And, you know, it was just, <laughs> it was just really bizarre. And, and to every man, I think, the founders of every man with whom I spoke in advance of going on the retreat couldn't quite articulate to me why it was useful to engage in these discussions or in these practices in a gender exclusive space. Every time I asked, they were always sort of distressingly vague about it to the point where they would say things like, well, it's just different. And I couldn't, I couldn't extract any sort of, um, I mean, probably because they're, they're very savvy, but yes, they were utterly loath. To, to make a clear statement on that. So it was it was just very bizarre. Yeah, I mean, I think what you describe about the experience of every man and specifically the marketing of it, it seems very like you can't separate the two because what they are doing says so much about the time that we are in where it's like, you know, 
Raytheon celebrates pride. Like right, this, like this right. vaguely, this vaguely progressive idea. But then, if you actually want to be like, well, what do you believe? There's no attempt to elucidate it. But I mean, clearly, part of it is that they see toxic masculinity as the disease, right? And every man is the cure, right? So, what does the term toxic masculinity mean? And where did it originate? And how does it fit into the broader Everyman project? For Everyman, you know, it's interesting because they, in their in their advertising, I think they they invoke toxic masculinity, but they're very careful not to necessarily say that they're the lone antidote to it. And to be fair, at the end of the retreat, one of the the founders advised the retreat attendees, you know, if if maybe a therapist is is the right course of action for you, et cetera. But I think, you know, all of the coverage that I had seen of every man in advance of going on the trip was, I mean, it was complimentary to the point of being hagiographic. You know, um, I was I was utterly baffled that there wasn't any sense of concern, criticism. All of the coverage seemed insensible to the history of men's groups and wasn't very much interested in exploring them. And and it was it was bizarre the impression that i got was like oh good men are going and and taking care of it themselves and nobody thought well maybe that's not <laughs> the best pro <laughs> the cognitive program for going about this and right. one of the ironies of that i thought was this sort of go it alone ap- approach of course dovetails neatly with images of masculinity that have long proven to be problematic namely the Mar- marlboro men mythos whereby let's go it alone let's wander the frontier and and take care of it ourselves and i it it was it was very bizarre to just see some of these narratives being reinstantiated in the retreat weekend without ever without anyone ever being aware of them i mean one of one of the other delicious ironies of of going on the retreat is that the the consensus view of quote unquote toxic males is that they're reticent they are frosty to the point of being asocial. And I, who, you know, I think my friends will tell you I'm kind of like emotionally incontinent. I didn't know, <laughs> I didn't know how I was going to fare there. And I also thought that as a journalist coming in, I would have to perform kind of some sort of rhetorical jujitsu to get these guys to open up to me. But what was funny was that they, the opposite turned out to be true. They had no problem. I mean, just gushes of emotion, of confessions, of traumatic experiences. So the problem that that every man putatively solved, namely get, helping guys get in touch with their emotions, that that didn't seem to be the problem. What seemed to be the problem was that there wasn't there wasn't a sufficient intellectual scaffolding for them to interrogate what these feelings were and where they were coming from, whether or not they were valid whether or not they needed to be interrogated themselves. There was none of that. Right. So typical stuff you would do at an actual therapy session. Yes. Well, without, without, I mean, I guess it would depend on, you know, one's therapist, but. If it's a good therapist. (laughs) Yeah. Well, but also too, I mean, there was no, there was no challenge. So, you know, I mentioned in the piece that at one point we had gone on a rather lengthy hike through the woods and and came back and a man came to check into to the large group session and he he spoke of putting mud on his face and that he found an animal bone in the woods and 
he, he started to break down crying and said something to the effect of in, in doing all of these things that he had realized he was, quote, a wild man unfit for society. And for that, I feel shame, end quote. And then we just moved on. There was, yeah. <laughs> there was no discussion. There was no interrogation. There was no sense that even the language that he was using was rooted in discourse that might be beneficial for all of us there to think about as it related to, to questions of masculinity. Yeah. Toxic masculinity, the way it manifests itself now is much more complicated than just dad doesn't like to talk about his feelings. It takes so many different forms and to reduce it to this catharsis, you know, like primal scream therapy has done or the Mm. Rajneesh, uh, they got their whole Netflix special. Uh, There, there's, there are limitations to seeing catharsis as the step. And I mean, I have to wonder, is that inability to have those deeper conversations or sort of follow up on things that maybe are, you know, clearly this is untreated trauma or this is maybe not totally true. This is just how you are seeing yourself. Is that because of the design in that these are retreats for as many men as they can get in there? Precisely. I think so. I mean, I think that very thing explains not only their approach, but also the the media coverage, at least early on, why it seemed so palatable was that it was very much in the grammar of, oh, yoga retreats for people who have, you know, millennial burnout or whatever, right? Like it was, it was very much that same flavor or aesthetic of a solution. And so I think that that's what was primarily so appealing about every man. And yeah, I think too, I think the very, the very program that they're establishing is tailored to or calibrated to appealing to the broadest possible swath of men. They ultimately their retreat weekends are a product, right? They're they're a company that is trying to make a profit. And so I think they have a vested interest in not challenging men, not I mean, it going so far as to avoid saying the word masculine. They're very open about saying that they don't like using the word masculinity. And and they'll they'll say that that's because beginning from that premise is a flawed one and it causes all these vexing things that they don't think are productive. And but yet, when we're talking about the efficacy of certain kinds of conversations, particularly ones around which the issue you're trying to solve is masculinity or that, that your advertising claims to suggest that you're an antidote for, it, just, it was just utterly baffling. I just didn't understand how they were trying to have it both ways. And it seemed to be that no one, the, the coverage thus far wasn't intervening and, and, and pointing that out. Yeah. And every man is currently in a period of expansion. Yeah. They're doing very well. But what is the evidence that men are particularly struggling or struggling in a particular way in this historical moment? Is it this discourse around toxic masculinity that that is a term that at least some people recognize or are there is there a larger question of like alienation yeah i think that that's one of the things that that my piece tried to talk about in particular you know mentioning that 79 percent of the nation's suicides are committed by men 80 mm-hmm. percent of the violent crime in the united states is committed by men and i, I guess anecdotally 
one of the reasons why I think this piece interested me is that I did sense once I started pulling back the onion layers on on some of these issues and ideas is that I noticed a lot of my male friends, but too, I, I bet a lot of this comes up with with my female friends as well, which is that there is a sense of kind of generational lostness, mm-hmm. um, I think. And I, I'm interested in the extent, you know, apart from my interest in, in this particular issue, I think I'm interested in the extent to which there's been a, a narrative breakdown, I mean, most saliently evidenced by kind of our post-truth climate, right? But there, there's a lack of narratives through which people can understand their experiences. And I think men's groups are one possible narrative, one kind of outdated, outmoded narrative for men to conceptualize what's going on with them. The trouble with that, at least over the course of the weekend, is that I saw a lot of issues, and I think maybe this is what your question is alluding to, I saw a lot of issues being invoked that really weren't necessarily gender-based. That, Mm. In fact, by virtue of being discussed at a men's retreat or being redescribed in terms of gender, often in ways that precluded larger political discussions that w- would have maybe yoked whatever anxieties they were feeling to the anxieties of people who've suffered, for, you know, and I say this in the piece, for much longer in far greater ways under the yoke of capitalism and patriarchy. So, like, it was very strange. The other lack of interest in having those kinds of discussions, it was just... Um, bizarre. (laughs) Yeah. And again, it ties back into this idea of like, we have to appeal to the broadest possible swath of men, even though, as you say, the majority of men were white. So again, that's speaking to a race and a class issue. Nobody's nobody's going to touch that. That's bad for business. It's interesting because maybe like a month ago, I, I still get the everyman emails and they were advertising something called a primitive skills workshop and it was like basically like wilderness aptitude training Mm -hmm. and that's since been pulled from their website i think i think they they're starting to realize that uh that they need to be more cautious or maybe some of the the criticism that's coming out now is is starting to affect how they're conceptualizing their program right which is good which is good yeah. yeah, I mean, hopefully they can use that to grow personal growth. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah. and I, I don't, I don't think that necessarily they have bad intentions. No, you know, I think it would be wrong to characterize them in that way. And I tried really hard in the piece to interrogate less their motivations and more so just the the program by which they were claiming to help redress some of these issues for these men. And and you know, I was quite moved and affected throughout the weekend by hearing some of the testimonies of these men and the situations in which they found themselves. And I felt, if anything, I felt discontented, if not out and out angry by the lack of meaningful discourse created around those things for for the men. I, I felt like the catharsis was just a temporary remedy for something that was much, much deeper. Right. I mean, obviously, every man is is not the example you would use, but do you feel like there is a place where these personal deprivations could be experienced as personal in a way that wouldn't ignore the social, political, economic dimensions? And what would that look like? Or is that just not something that could ever 
happen on a, a mass scale, let's say? Part of the trouble, I think, in answering that question is that the broad spectrum of issues that were being raised by the, the, the retreat attendees was so wide, right, that, mm-hmm. that there'd be so many different places for certain, you know, for certain men, I think some of the things that they were invoked would be, you know, useful to talk about at a union. You know, some mm. of the things that I that I heard would be useful to talk about with a trauma therapist and other things that I heard would be useful in talking to uh, feminist groups. I mean, one thing that I think is interesting about the, the popularity and the resurgence of men's groups is that it does it does point out the relative paucity of places for men to understand or like where where they exist and to reckon with privilege, patriarchy, masculinity, where are they to do that in a meaningful space? I don't know that there are. I mean, to be fair, in my in my research reading, I was I had the blinders on insofar I was looking at men's groups in particular. I know well, one thing I, I saw in in the wake of my piece coming out that there is a men's group, I, I believe in Portland, that is using the Harper's piece as sort of the starting point to have a conversation oh, about. Oh, wow, that's good. Yeah, which was which was gratifying. But yeah, I, I think that's right. I think, you know, the gamut of issues that I saw raised there, there there'd be so many different venues for for men to interrogate that, many of which I don't think should necessarily be described as a I think there's actually a danger in describing it in terms of one's gender. Mm. And the danger exists rather in neon in things like the Proud Boys and the alt-right and the resurgence of those things. Those are are men's groups that are re-describing certain problems as matters of of gender in a very vitriolic way, right? But Mm -hmm. it's nevertheless the same cognitive swerve. And I, I guess that that's... That's what's concerning to me. Of course. And I mean, Jordan Peterson, his idea that, oh, make your bed. That's not a bad idea. Oh, and sure. he's certainly yeah. not the first person to tell whoever is watching him, you need to make your bed and you need to sure. sit up straight and you need to try at least try to grow up. But it's the everything else that comes with it that makes it so dangerous and bad. Because yeah. it's it's like the classic sort of thing where if one thing is true and you can kind of hook them in and then bring yeah. all this other stuff that's not necessarily right. true in there. Um, right. I wanted to talk quickly, you know, the term toxic masculinity is something or even just the process of detoxifying masculinity. Describing yeah. that to someone who isn't of our generation because I've noticed that any mention of the term tends to provoke, you know, an eye roll or two, even from people who are not men. Right. So there's a question like how, how to go about detoxifying or how to go about talking about that. I mean, I think I think there's a hesitance from older people to see toxic masculinity as a thing that is uh, a real and B right. needs to be treated in some way. You know, there's just sort of a doubt that it exists or a hesitance or just sort of a denial to sort of take it seriously, perhaps because it is something that was popularized through the internet discourse. Like it's like, it's like, oh yeah, these whiny snowflakes are mad about this thing now. Right. And it's actually, it's like, well, actually this is a real thing. Yeah. And I wonder, I wonder too, if one of the things that, that I uncovered in the research and, and 
this was something that I had mentioned in the piece was that conceptions of masculinity and manhood, at least in the colonial era, like the virtuous man in the colonial era was someone who would surrender his resources and his time for one's community. And what was denigrated was sort of the, the frontier loner, right? Mm-hmm. The, the guy, they were called frontier wastrels. Um, <laughs> and they were men who were aggressive, who, who sought sort of a Nietzschean will to power, who, who win it alone, right? But with the turn toward modern capitalism, what one found is that conceptions of masculinity and, and manhood tracked pretty neatly upon, um, with behaviors that were rewarded in corporate environments, right. namely aggression, dominance, etc. And so I wonder if, if part of the sort of cognitive dissonance with certain folks in, in reckoning with what toxic masculinity is, is that the, the narratives are so deeply ingrained in, in some of the, the social structures in which we operate and, and sort of the, you know, certain inflections of the Judeo-Christian tradition that they're so neatly aligned with those things that it's hard, it's hard for people to separate and understand what, what it is one is talking about. Right. You know, the classic meme of like how men used to dress, how men today dress, where it's like a picture of Cary Grant, and then there's a picture of like some runway show of like couture that no one is actually going to wear. (laughs) Right, right, right. And it's like, well, actually, not too long ago, before the Industrial Revolution, men did get fucking dressed up and they wore makeup and they did all these, they did quote unquote crazy things that were a quote-unquote effeminate but these things are totally malleable but that never gets addressed in movements like the proud boys or with jordan peterson or any or iron john where it's like masculinity all this stuff around gender is so malleable and so dependent on the historical context in which it exists because it doesn't exist in a vacuum because it's being impacted by all these different forces and again like seeing it only through the the lens of gender is like really short-sighted and it's going to lead you to not so hot places or you will have to stop at a certain point. Absolutely. It's totally dehistoricized. Um, these conversations are, are dehistoricized and as to the, you know, the every man's approach is dehistoricized. And the, the irony of that is that in dehistoricizing your approach, you're actually invoking things that historically have been problematic or have shifted or have changed as, as you point out. And so, yeah, I, I, and I think that tracks pretty neatly too with how um, a lot of our discourse around social issues is, is executed um, a kind of cultural amnesia. When I think that's Marilyn Robinson's phrase around out of what sort of historical ferment are these problems emerging. And, and I think that things like every man are a neat neoliberal solution they're a neat way for corporations. And, and that was kind of the intent behind discussing at the end of my piece, how corporations are approaching every man as, as a possible solution to toxic masculinity in the workplace, right? Well, the thing about that is, of course, of course, every man would be an alluring antidote to those things because they're utterly dehistoricized. They're utterly uninterested in the very corporate environments and the very corporate systems that plays some role in fostering those very attributes and behaviors and, and anxieties and, and depletions in men. One of the things that was 
both interesting and despairing in the wake of going on the retreat is there was a check-in call and um, for various reasons, namely that I teach at a university, I, I wasn't able to, to sit in on that call, but I talked to some of the men in the wake of that call. And what I heard was that a lot of the guys who were at the retreat were expressing fear and sadness about the fact that it was so hard to feel like how they were feeling at the retreat in their everyday lives and that they felt like they'd had no meaningful intellectual scaffolding onto which they could put their sort of daily existence, which for me was kind of a, a clarion enunciation of, of the problem, right? Of, mm-hmm. of the, the problematic approach to these issues. So yeah, it was all, it was all very sad. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wanted to ask, just out of curiosity, you know, you describe various, the, the holotropic breathing is pretty bizarre, but what was the strangest part of your everyman experience that you had to leave on the cutting room floor? Oh, that I had to leave on the cutting room floor. Oh, God. That's a good question. You know, a certain I, I did my best to sort of allude to everything that that I found most alarming. Mm. But I mean, I mean the the morning sort of like jumping jacks and push-ups, which I briefly allude to in I think the second graph of the piece, that was bizarre. I mean, what what <laughs> what are we doing here? I mean, everything everything to sort of the the gruff baritone with which the yoga instructor gave us directions to breathe, right? It was just, it was very strange. But I think the thing that most moved me was the moment in the, during the anger ceremony, I, t- I do talk about this in the piece, where I saw the man praying amid the most ghastly and vile things I heard being screamed in this forest at around 7 a.m. That, that Sunday morning, very early in the morning. And to see the guy fall on his knees and and start praying and see him cover his ears was such a crisp depiction of the danger I I thought of some of the things that we were being asked to do. You know, it was very comic at times. Mm -hmm. Um, The jumping jacks are comic. The breath work, I mean, at least initially was, I mean, it's hard not, it's hard not to laugh when, when one hears like these roaring noises, right? Or to be in, being being enjoined to like let it rip. These things I, I couldn't help but find somewhat comical. But that once I saw the man praying and once I saw the man hyperventilating during the holotropic breathwork scene, I knew I knew that I wasn't entering something that was wasn't just farcical, but that was there was probably significant danger. Mm. And in doing subsequent research reading about holotropic breathwork about the efficacy of, you know, primal scream therapy, the latter of which bore out that, you know, sometimes that that isn't actually effective at all and actually encourages the participants of primal scream therapy to want to do it again. Mm. Um, and and we, we could talk about, you know, <laughs> the various problems of, you know, making primal scream therapy like a, a ritualized practice or whatever in one's daily life. I'm just imagining sort of like howls coming from Google bathrooms or something. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, they have Google pillows that right, you can right. shout into in right. the bathroom. Right, yeah. right. And, and the decibel level is tracked and that data is stored and measured against productivity <laughs> for, you know, they're okay. Um, so, but in those two 
outflashings of the perils of this kind of thing, I, I just I got really distressed, and it was it was no longer funny, and I felt for the men whose whose traumas I'd been made aware of, and I I I just desperately wanted to go home. I think mm. in, in those moments, I knew I had experienced something that was important, but it was just so so. Yeah, it busted me up in a in a real way, and I and I hope that comes through in the piece. No, it definitely does. Um, the one thing I would be curious to know, given how much sharing there was, did you get a sense that other men at the retreat were mm-hmm. having a similar reaction to you? I did. Or was just everybody like a hundred percent in? Yeah. What was weird is that the ones and it. It was hard to decipher, well, one, because the men who were there were self, obviously self-selecting, right? So they, they were there because they wanted a transformative experience. But nevertheless, I, I just got whiffs and intimations of, of men who maybe were having some hesitations or were looking askance at some of the things we were doing or noticing the things that I was noticing too, namely that someone, you know, started hyperventilating during one of the exercises what was weird was that I would try to suss that out and they, they were the ones who didn't want to talk to me. Hmm. They didn't want to answer my question. They were, they, were, they were appreciative of my curiosity about that, but they didn't, they wouldn't want to talk about it. And I, I, I didn't know why. I couldn't, I couldn't, I mean, I guess in retrospect, they were, they were probably concerned that they would hurt the program and they sensed that every man would, had good intentions and they, that they're generally generally nice people, affable mm. people, and didn't want to be a detriment to them, which I can respect. And so I didn't push on it too hard. But I would say, generally speaking, a good portion of the men had, at least at the time, very, very positive experiences and, and spoke in evangelistic tones about the, the changes they felt themselves undergoing. But again, whether or not those were lasting things was kind of made evident to me in some of those catch-up calls in subsequent weeks. So, yeah. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is cut and shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save. 